All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Today I've chosen to emphasize content over delivery, and so today's message is going to be much more manuscripted than what you're used to. Today's message is entitled, Would Jesus March? Our family moved to Memphis, Tennessee on July 31st, 2011. I remember it well. I had driven our moving truck here from Nashville a couple of days earlier. We left it here at a church athletic field out in Bartlett, praying that it and its contents would still be here uh, when I return. I left Katie and Riley, who was 10, and Cole, who was 8, and Johannes, who was at that time 4, to stay with old friends. And because I didn't have a salary, I took a Greyhound bus back to Nashville to fly to Dallas to do a wedding. When I got there, I learned it would be an outdoor event on the hills of over 60 days with 100 degree temperatures. I think it got down to 99 degrees by 6 p.m. that night when the wedding took place. I woke up the next morning, flew back to Nashville, jumped in my car, and drove to Memphis and was met by friends from what was then Living Hope Church Plant, who so graciously helped us to unload all that we owned into a rental, into a rental home in order to start a brand new church with only the five members of our family. Not sure that was the smartest way to start. Katie and I stayed up until about 3 or 4 a.m., uh, unpacking, putting beds and a house together for our kids to arrive the following morning, delivered by grandparents. Katie immediately headed over to Snowden School to register them where they would be uh, the minority in terms of color. Well, all except for Johannes, who, who wasn't quite school age, but who was still young enough and new enough to America to believe that moving from Nashville to Memphis meant moving to a new country. Johannes had been adopted from Ethiopia nine months earlier. Why did we engage in this crazy timeline of exhaustion? All because God had given us a vision to plant a church in the urban context of Memphis, Tennessee. We had offers to go to Vegas, to stay in Nashville, or head to other cities. In fact, we sat on the porch at Bosco's and listen to voicemails from two potential job opportunities on the same day. The very day that we had decided God was indeed calling us here to Memphis, to Midtown, in order to plant a church that would reflect the power of the gospel being lived out in everyday life by everyday people. That passion included a deep desire to see God's church reflect all the beauty and cultural and ethnic nuances of the community we would call home. Simply put, Katie and I didn't want the church to look like a collection of white middle class families. We prayed that through the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in our relationships, we might see a small reflection of the kingdom of God in redeeming all people. Those with great resources and those with less resources. Those with skin color like ours and those whose skin was not like ours. We hope to reach the people of different races and color and reflect a little picture of what heaven will be like as the Apostle John described in Revelation 7 in verses 9 and 10 in which he wrote, After this I looked 
And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This vision that we had, it wasn't born out of a scheme to right the wrongs of the past or or really to create a new way forward for other churches. Instead, it was simply a biblical vision to see the gospel reach all people made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 tells us, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Bible makes no mention of their skin color, Black, white, brown, tan, we simply don't know. Even though most of our pictures today portray Adam and Eve as being especially pale, considering the fact that they were living naked in a garden, you'd think artists would at least give them a decent tan. The Bible is clear in declaring that all humans are equal because we're equally made in the image of God and therefore we have inestimable dignity and worth regardless of our natural abilities or or characteristics. On Monday, May 25th, Memorial Day in the United States of America, a day when we remember those who have fallen and given the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom, police officers in Minneapolis took a series of actions that, that violated the policies of their police department. The results of a police officer pinning George Floyd to the ground with his knee on George's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Not even removing his knee after Floyd lost consciousness or for a full minute after paramedics arrived at the scene resulted in George Floyd's murder. And this single act set off what seems to be a chain reaction of protests and riots, cries against police brutality and demands for equality all across our country. George Floyd was murdered by a police officer who refused to remove his knee from the neck of a dying man who begged using the words, I can't breathe. And this phrase has become the rallying cry of people, not simply in America, but all across our world. Protests have broken out in London and Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, Spain, South Africa, Brazil, even Japan. Here's the question I would propose to you today. What belief within the heart and soul of mankind could cause people from different backgrounds and cultures and skin colors and economic strata and of all things in our day and time, even different political parties to come together in order to protest and demand that change take place. The answer? The desire for equality, equity, dignity, fairness. The words we would wrap up with the term justice. And this is where people begin to circle their wagons. This is where the great divide begins to take place. Some would side with the belief that justice comes through legislation. And honoring your fellow men. And there are others who are demanding that 
legislation has failed and that we must cry out for justice. Even fight for justice. And I beg that you might consider that the answer is far deeper and more complex than either side might imagine or even begin to realize. Where does the desire for justice come from? For surely if there is injustice, then there must also be justice. In other words, there is something rooted within the souls of all of humanity that cries out that humans be treated justly. But who gets to decide what is just, what is right, or what is unjust? Who legislates the morality of the world in which we live? And and how do we change this world in order to bring about a, a greater morality? In seeing all as equal? Is it through passing more laws? Can justice be legislated? The Bible helps us in answering these questions. The scriptures tell us that This innate desire for justice within the hearts of human beings comes from the fact that we have been bestowed with equal worth and dignity. Because we're each created in the image of a holy God. And it was God who breathed in us the breath of life and gave us our being. Therefore, it is God who defines justice. Our problem with injustice is sadly rooted far deeper than than even our skin color. The problem of injustice runs to the depths of our very souls. Beginning in the garden, when Adam and Eve distrusted God and believed he was unjust. Holding back from them the knowledge of good and evil. And so they acted unjustly and sinned against God. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And scripture says their eyes were opened and they felt shame for the first moment in their lives because they had sinned against God. The first unjust act echoes throughout the story of humanity and none of us are innocent. Today I'd love to jump really quickly to a passage of scripture in the book of James that illustrates just how difficult this problem of justice is that we face. You can turn to James chapter 2. We're just going to spend a few moments in this passage. Even among Christians in the church who have been redeemed, those who would claim to follow Jesus, we see just how difficult this problem of injustice truly is. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. Follow along as I read from the words of James, the brother of Jesus. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, You stand over there. Or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. But he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Instantly in this passage, we recognize the sin of partiality. As Jesus' brother James describes. I, I can remember the summer that I was on sabbatical. I, I took a Sunday away from the gathering and then came back simply as an attender. To my surprise, an old acquaintance showed up who was a multimillionaire. Another well-known lawyer was also in attendance, visiting both of them for the first time with their families. And suddenly I felt an unusual need to attend to them or somehow make sure they had a good experience. Why? Because they were people of means, pure and simple. And pure and simple, this is sinful and evil. Partiality comes to us naturally because we are selfish and sinful, broken from the fall. I'll illustrate my point in this way. If you show up at the Sunday gathering and there's a friend you haven't seen in a long time who regularly lets you borrow his lake cabin... Imagine it for a minute. Five wave runners, a ski nautique, and Memorial Day's around the corner. And there's a homeless man standing by himself in the back of the room who you know all too well. You've talked with him before and you know that most likely he will ask you to take him to lunch and to pay. Who will you talk to? Jesus' command is that we show no partiality as we hold the faith. Why would we do such an absurd thing? How could we do such an absurd thing? Showing partiality is as natural as choosing ice cream over turnip greens because the natural thought process of our hearts moves towards seeking pleasure, towards self-preservation. What's in it for me? And sadly, racism is another form of showing partiality. Thinking someone is inferior because of the color of their skin. Believing someone has less value or less worth or less to offer intellectually. Or that they may be more dangerous because of the color of their skin. And if you don't believe that systemic and individual racism continues to exist in our country today then you are ignorant of the sin condition of your very own human heart. Ask our elders to share thoughts toward today. And Chris told me about an African-American employee. We'll, we'll call his name Travis. He was cleaning out a house in the East Button neighborhood. and He called Chris to inform him the police needed his assistance to clear up a matter. Chris arrived on the scene to 
discovered that the homeowner across the street who happened to lead the neighborhood watch had called the police to report an African-American man with a pickup truck and a trailer carrying bags from a house. Travis was cleaning up the job site. Chris was enraged and told the neighbor that he owed Travis an apology. And as the scene became heated, Chris told me that Travis put his hand on Chris's chest and stood between him and the neighbor and said, Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Later, when the incident was over, Chris asked Travis how he could be so calm about such a terrible situation. Travis informed Chris, this happens all the time. It's nothing new. My friend Remy informed me that if he walks down the middle of the street, he's told he can't walk in the street. But if he walks on the sidewalk, he's accused of looking suspicious and asked what he's hiding. His point to me several years ago, it hit a nerve he, in essence, was saying, if you are black in Memphis, it's tough to know where you can walk. This is not my story. I'm white in majority culture. I don't claim to know the pain of living in a society that continues to show partiality and, yes, racism toward people of color in individual and systemic manners. But I am friends with Terrell and Ali and Mondonico and Juan, and Takesha, and many others, who sadly throughout the years have told me story after story of being treated differently because of the color of their skin. I do have adopted brown-skinned sons who I fear will be treated unfairly. If you think racism isn't alive and well in America today, it doesn't necessarily mean you are a racist. But it likely means you don't have friends of color who are willing to trust you with the tough stories they have experienced in our country. A great country that is also filled with the realities of a racial war that has a long-standing, violent, and dehumanizing history. James instructs us to show no partiality. Partiality translates a Greek word that means literally receiving the face. Meaning to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations. Such as physical appearance, social status, or race. Why should we show no partiality? Because God never does. Over and over again in both Old Testament and New Testaments, God declares over and over... I show no partiality. A favoritism based on external considerations. This type of partiality would be inconsistent with faith in the one who came to break down the barriers of nationality, race, class, gender, and religion. As Paul says in Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Yet the amount of time that James spends addressing partiality, it seems to point to the fact that this was a major sin and obviously a major problem within the church. 
How then do we rid ourselves of this sin? How do we even begin to move toward evaluating our own lives, confessing known sin, walking in repentance, especially in a country that at times worships freedom, all the while having built this free world on the backs of slaves who were seen as inferior and treated inhumanely. When the, when the world around us is crying out for justice, we do not rid the church of the sin of racism by merely declaring this is just a sin problem or the gospel is the only answer. While these statements are true, we're never content to use these simple phrases and move on when it comes to abortion. Instead, we defend the right to life. We protest. We get angry. It saddens me greatly to see so many Christian pastors, friends, brothers who love Jesus deeply and care passionately about the gospel, yet they quickly turn a blind eye to the hurt and ill treatment of our fellow brothers and sisters of color in the church. They are quick to use the gospel as a cop-out in order to sidestep the sin of racism and never address it in their churches. White Bible-believing pastors will search the far reaches of the internet to find an article written by one black pastor who labels this as just a sin problem. Here's a quote from one I found just this week that was posted by a well-known pastor here in our city. He posts this written by an African-American pastor. Contrary to the racial narrative being propagated, this is not a racial issue. Racism is merely a symptom. Sin is the real problem. Okay, let's stop right there for a minute. Racism is merely a symptom and sin is the real problem. He fails to mention the fact that racism is sin. Don't, don't take the two apart. He goes on and he says, Sin is the real problem and it will never be solved through politics and religion. If that was possible, would we be having this conversation? He continues, While the civil government is a God-ordained institution, Romans 13, it is incapable of legislating righteousness. There are no laws that can be enacted to eradicate what happened in Minneapolis. End of quote. Oh, really? Is that the same stance that we take on abortion, even though it's been nearly 50 years now since Roe versus Wade was passed, mind you, by a 7-2 to two vote? Did you know that six of those seven Supreme Court justices who voted in favor of abortion were appointed by Republicans? Yet you will never hear the white, conservative, evangelical church in America today say abortion is just a sin problem and it will never be solved through politics. You'll never hear that. No. Many will bend over backwards to try to defend the least godly of individuals simply because they've adopted a pro-life platform. I would ask you, what is it that the church is so scared of? Is it the appearance of being labeled liberal? Is it the idea that the believing that black lives matter somehow connotes support for gay marriage and abortion? 
Have we so limited Jesus in the old religious Bible belt that we believe he can be contained to one political party line? Listen, folks, I'm not Democrat and I'm not Republican. I follow Jesus. And when we refuse to stand with people of color who are hurting and protesting and crying out, I can't breathe all over our world, we weaken the gospel. The world has, if you will, tossed us a, as a church a softball. I mean, it, what an easy one to knock out of the park. And they search for justice. And the best that we can do is to tweet that they have a sin problem and the gospel is enough. No, we can do far better than this. We can declare that we stand along with you. Racism is a sin problem and the gospel is enough and we have failed to love. This is why the church must lead the way. Not in defending, not in deflecting with fears of falling into critical race theory or, or skirting the issue with gospel platitudes. Instead, we must lead the way in humility and in lament. We must learn to listen, especially to those uh, of us who are a part of majority culture. We must listen to both God and our brothers and sisters of color who are hurting. We must not be so fearful or fall into self-preservation that we're quick to defend ourselves, quick to try to just put this behind us. But instead, we must weep with those who weep. Lament takes time, which means listening more than speaking. Let me say that again. Listening more than speaking. Racism and abuse of power is a part of our national story. And even more unfortunately, a part of our church history that can be very hard to own. But own it we must. For those white Christians, let me speak to you for a moment, who would say, how many times do we have to apologize? Are we responsible for the sins of our forefathers? Does being a part of a majority culture imprison us to white guilt that we must live with? In response to those questions, there's a real simple answer. We must stand with the scripture and the gospel which instructs us to repent and turn away from sin. Meaning, as long as there is sin, there should be repentance. As long as men and women exist, so will evil. So we must name the sin of racism and continue to repent. How does this happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because James gives us instruction in how we are to defeat racism and partiality. The answer is love, but not just any type of love that, that we can conjure up on our own. In verse 8, James reminds us, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say that, that those who break the law of God, he gives these examples of adultery or murder, he says they've broken the entire law. James is making the point that those who claim to be followers of Jesus but, but treat others with partiality, that they're guilty under the law, that they'll be judged by God. And James ends this section in verse 13 with the words, mercy triumphs over, just, over judgment. 
mercy triumphs over judgment does not, in this context, mean that God's mercy is extended to believers at the judgment. That's not the context of this passage, even though that's true. Instead, in this passage, believers' acts of mercy, examples would be caring for the poor and those who are hurting. Believers' acts of mercy will mean that they are vindicated at the judgment. James is making the case that the gospel always leads to good works. We see an example of that as we think about Matthew chapter 25 in verse 34. As Jesus, these are Jesus' words, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Mercy was an essential Old Testament requirement for dealing with the poor. Mercy is also a requirement of believers in the New Testament. Or, James is pointing out that they will experience God's judgment rather than His mercy. Now, in this text, I'm not making the comparison that those who suffer from racism are all financially poor. However, people of color are often poor in the dignity, the equity, and equality that they should be shown, that should be shown to them by our world. So how do we show this level of mercy that James is is calling us to? How can people who are so bent on individualism and self-preservation and personal rights and freedoms even begin to show mercy to brothers and sisters around them who are hurting? And the answer comes in our title, Would Jesus March? The truth of the matter is that Jesus marched into this world unimaginably. To quote Philip Yancey, the maker of all things shrank down, down so small as to become a single fertilized egg barely visible to the naked eye. An egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape, enlarging cell by cell inside a nervous teenager. Paul would say that he marched by humbling himself. Paul's words, making himself nothing. Jesus marched into a world so menacing that all Jewish boys in his region were killed by Herod as part of the massacre of innocents for fear of his kingdom. Jesus marched to Africa with Mary and Joseph where he fled in order to spend the first years of his life growing up as a refugee. Wise men from the east visited Jesus and upon realizing who he was, engaged in an act of civil disobedience and deceived Herod by going home another way in order to protect the child. 
Jesus marched for 33 years as a man who was despised and rejected by men. He marched as a man of sorrow who was acquainted with grief. He marched to Golgotha to be crucified as an innocent man on a cross where a racial epithet mocking him hung above his head, King of the Jews. Jesus marched in order that all men and women, no matter of their color, creed, or class, could come to the foot of the cross in order to find mercy and pardon for their sins. Jesus marched in order that you and I could have a change of heart, a new heart that desires to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God and our fellow man. Something that no amount of laws or legislation can bring about. So who are we to deny equality? Who are we to show partiality? Who are we to commit the sin of racism that's antithetical to the gospel? Jesus marched and was treated unjustly so that you and I could experience mercy and be reconciled to God and to one another. Would Jesus march? Oh yes, he did. And he requires that his children extend the same type of mercy that he's extended to us. Mercy that is undeserved. Mercy that is costly. Mercy that requires sacrifice and love. This is the way of Jesus. Would Jesus march? Oh yes he would. But he doesn't allow our marching to end with a peaceful protest. Instead, he gives us a ministry of reconciliation in which we march daily as his ambassadors, loving those around us as ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, confessing when we show partiality and repenting of our sin, and continuing the work of reconciling a lost and broken world to God. We do this by declaring the gospel. Jesus marched to the cross for you and for me. Jesus died for you. Jesus was raised to life and so can you be raised to life if you repent and believe and follow Jesus. Where do we go from here, Mercy Hill Church? Three things that I would encourage us in. The first is this, don't give up because this work is hard because it's truly hard. I've never preached on racism before and not had hard conversations and even lost members from a congregation. But we can thank God for His grace in racial reconciliation, even here in our little church family. We can evaluate and repent of racial sin and injustice that each of us have held within our hearts and even at times helped to perpetuate. Peter asked you really, difficult question this last week he said how have we as a church or how have we as leaders in the church perpetuated racism it's a very difficult question just to face to ask to have the courage to even ask it how have we we can continue to pray for continued health growth and leadership in areas of racial reconciliation we're looking at a pastoral hire in the future. And as we think about a music director or even an associate pastor, we have always prayed that if God would bring someone of color who could be a part of our paid staff, we would welcome that and we've even searched out for that. That doesn't seem to have been God's desire up until this point, but we can continue to pray for that. 
doesn't mean we failed if, if God doesn't grant that, but we would fail if we didn't pray for that. The second thing that I would encourage us in is to continue doing justice, as Micah 6.8 calls for us to do. Doing justice, as we've been doing through so many different avenues over the years. Through literacy classes and art classes and, and Mercy House. Oh my goodness, so much sweat at Mercy House. And caring for the homeless through Room in the Inn and individual work with families and friends. So much individual work with families and friends. Advocating for those who need a voice, living in relationship with people from different cultures and backgrounds and extending grace when we sin against one another and we don't get it right because it happens all the time. But as believers in Christ, we can extend grace and we can say, we didn't get it right. Would you forgive me? I was offensive. Would you forgive me? Or maybe even more importantly, you offended me. Would you please extend forgiveness? The third thing that we can do is that we are called to pray and share the gospel of God and our lives with those who are hurting and in need. That in a message like today, I think one of the dangers and, and I think one of the fears of churches who will not address racism as, as a sin, I think one of the fears is that they'll say, oh, we're, we're just appealing to a social gospel and that we're only appealing to what's physical and not what's spiritual. And I, I would just call us to remember that the gospel addresses physical and spiritual needs. And that we should remember that as well. It's not enough to fight for justice in this world. We must also fight for mercy. People need to experience the love of man and the love of God. That only comes through declaring the gospel and seeing men and women bow their knees and surrender their lives and their hearts and come to know Jesus and follow him. It only happens through humility and surrender of ourselves to Jesus. Would Jesus march? He did. He would. And he invites us to march each day of our lives as his ambassadors of peace and reconciliation to a broken and lost world. Praise be to God. For his march into our world and into our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand before you today as a holy God. And we stand before you in humility. God, we stand before you knowing that in the society in which we live, God, uh, we have failed our brothers and our sisters particularly our brothers and sisters of color, how easy it is to grow up making jokes, using humor to make fun of those who don't look like us. And God, as we grow older, how easy it is to fail to recognize the systemic ways that our culture has looked upon Brothers and sisters of color as inferior. And Father, we pray for your forgiveness. We pray that we would be men and women and children who continue to see that all people are made with dignity and worth that is equal because we are all made in your image. And it's only because of your mercy that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus, and we pray that that same reconciliation, that we wouldn't think of the gospel as merely being a vertical reconciliation, but that we would also think of the arms of the cross and recognizing the horizontal reconciliation that 
always need to be done until your kingdom has come and your will is done. And that will only be Jesus when you return. And so we long for that day when we will see you face to face. And until then, would you give us passion and more than ever, would you give us wisdom? Would you give our leaders, our president, our mayor, all of our governing officials wisdom, God, that we would be a country that is unified? And would you give us wisdom to walk in grace and in humility and to walk in a power that we cannot conjure up from our own hearts, but only a power that can be displayed by the power of the Holy Spirit working out the gospel in and through our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.